0: Welcome to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason Stephan Hagen.
1: I'm Steph Spencer. And I'm Lisa Adams.
0: We are hosting conversations about scripture for the curious doubters and hope seekers. We're inviting people to ask different questions, questions asked by those who have been wounded and hurt, questions asked by those who have deconstructed and are looking for a reconstruction. We're creating space for love, kindness, justice, and curiosity. We will wrestle, we will question, we will dance, We will dream, we will wonder, we will be frustrated, and we will hope. We aren't searching for singular answers or solutions. We are searching the sacred. Normally, we would just be diving right into a passage of scripture, but we thought it would be fun to kind of ask the question, what does this season kind of hold for each of us? Lisa and Steph, what does this season kind of conjure up in you?
2: I get a little overwhelmed about the layers of the season so I have this sort of mix of uh, nostalgia for Christmas's past and frustration at consumerism and um, the sugary untrue Christmas and then I feel this desire but also pressure to get into depth and meaning And I feel like all of that usually swirls to me feeling like I don't know what to do each day or feel sort of dissatisfied wherever I end up making my choices because it doesn't feel like it quite lands where I hope it would land. Wah, wah.
1: (laughs) I mean, uh, (laughs) I was like, man, well, I don't know that I love uh, consumerism. But I I like to give gifts. It's probably something in a love language. Um, I like to give meaningful gifts um, or like the big surprise gift, like the one somebody's not expecting to get. I love doing that. And um, but you know what I always think? This is what I I'm already sensing it. I don't know. Maybe this is my
3: <clears throat>
1: I call it realism. <laughs> Some people call it pessimism. But i wish that christmas actually like happened in january because like january puts me in a funk because i feel like all the good is over and so like i kind of wish i wish it kind of lasted like i would like to move christmas a little bit further out because like right now like the snow is really kind of pretty like i still find a little bit of joy in like twinkle lights and fireplace and all the cozy gets me i like it i like all of that um I was noticing too, <laughs> it's interesting because when I had younger kids, it was really easy to like do advent things. We would do like we would read the story every night. We had this little magnetic um like there were characters and we would put the magnets on a big picture. And so like we had all these like um like practices and kind of traditions, but the kids are older now. They they aren't interested in reading the story and putting up magnets. Uh so I frequently like sign up for like fifteen different Advent things, and I do none. <laughs> like, I like, I have all these dreams for it, and then it just gets overwhelming. I want it all to slow down, but it all feels super fast.
0: How about you, Jason? Yeah, I'm in a similar boat. I think I, I feel like this is a great season for a lot of things. So I'm going to take the positive side of it. Like, I love the idea of like the awe and wonder of it all. Like my parents, my hometown, right? My parents still live in the same house I grew up in. And like the first Friday or Saturday night of December, um, the local food shelf partners with like the police and fire department and they like have a Santa Claus come around on sleds and they collect food. And of course they have like, the one squad car that goes ahead and talks to all the parents and then they relay it back to the Santa Claus on the sleigh. So whenever they get to like the kid's house, they call out the actual kid's name. And so my kids and I have been going out to my parents' house that on that weekend. We even brought the neighbor girls one year. And of course their names got, you know, named by Santa. And that was just kind of this little cute thing. And, and so I just, you know, it's like, it's like a yes. Right. And then if somebody wanted to go to the Holly Dazzle parade when I was growing up, it was just kind of like a yes. You know, if somebody wanted to go to I don't know if you guys remember this, like, but Dayton's eighth floor where they would do like the Christmas carol or some other Disney thing or whatever. It was just like a yes. Like, let's just go. Let's see the lights. You know, let's go do whatever. And, and so I feel like there's just a lot of good opportunities to say yes, because it is such a unique time in the calendar to where it's just kind of happening. And so I like like, what are we going to listen to on the radio in the car? Christmas music. What are we going to listen to, you know, at home? Like we're going to put on some album, you know, and. And so I think it's always been an easy yes. And then recently we've really been trying to lean into like what is advent versus what is Christmas. That's become a topic of conversation for both my wife and I and some of our friends. Um it's been a topic of conversation for how we navigate it with our family. Like what does it mean when the the people of Israel were waiting for a Messiah? What does it mean for us in anticipation of the coming kingdom and participating in that and what does it mean to to be still and to wait and how do we embrace the fact that we're moving towards, um, the longest night, you know, and, and looking, looking at, you know, December 21st as this, uh, or the 22nd, whatever, whichever it is, um, as this like kind of night of darkness. Um, and, and so it was just kind of an interesting season to be in. And I kind of just say yes to it. Like let's try to figure out what it means to embrace it as we, as it comes to us. Mm -hmm.
2: Starting in this conversation was like, it's interesting thinking about Advent. There's a lot of history of Advent I don't know. Like I know that this used to be a time of year. Jesus wasn't born in December. Sorry if that's <laughs> new news to anybody. <laughs> There's lots of ways that it came to be over time to be in in this season. And it gets a little confusing to me, like not sure that this is when I want to celebrate it I don't know if I don't even know how to ask that or say that but like sometimes it feels forced or it feels Advent is tough I, I think Advent is tough for me I like Christmas Advent's tough I don't know why
1: well because it's kind of like a fake waiting right like there's a it's an interesting thing to think about um like Jason as you mentioned like waiting for Messiah. My brain was like quickly like cat and like the thing with Jesus is that as much as as Christians we like Jesus changed everything, right? And really what feels like changed was the unknown thing that we still don't actually know anything about because we don't know what it's like to die. Yeah. Like we don't know. We don't know any more now than we did before in lots of ways. Like, we're still hoping, like, we're actually still supposed to be in that posture of waiting. It's not resolved. But, like, in Advent, you, like, have to be ready to go to, like, Christmas. Your waiting's done. Um, so it feels almost like a like a fake practice in some ways. But actually, it's good for remembering. But I don't know. Like, maybe it's that resolution that happens that makes it feel, I don't know, disingenuous in some way. Or maybe we have to hold it differently
0: that's really interesting i i have not thought of it that way before about it being kind of this fake waiting or you know i i guess i've seen it as like a spiritual discipline where like you said we we are supposed to be in this kind of posture of like always waiting and anticipating but like waiting is less about doing nothing and more about like preparing building and getting ready and so I think the intentionality for me, at least the intentionality of using this time between Thanksgiving and Christmas Eve or, you know, Christmas day to like anticipate something and to be building towards something feels very intentional and it's work. Like there's also like something I'm doing. It's not just moping around sitting in darkness and like, you know, singing the sad Christmas songs or something, but, uh, there's this. Like we're moving towards something and and that there is a celebration of it. Like there is a feast, there is a banquet, there is an enjoyment. And uh, and I think that that is part of this, the, the Christian discipline as well, is to, you know, mourn with those who mourn. But I think we're also called to celebrate with each other and to find, to have joy. And so I'm not trying to poo-poo your thoughts on that, Lisa, at all. I'm just, um, I think there is something about the celebration of it after preparing for it, that is really meaningful,
2: well, you reminded me when you said that Jason, of our conversation last time about hope and waiting, and that there's something active about hope and waiting as you're preparing as the ground is preparing to be the place where the seeds can come forth and which that when I put it in that context then christmas it feels more satisfying to me because there's a whole bunch of questions that aren't answered on Christmas. The problem is it's just that we pretend they're answered on Christmas. But, like when we're celebrating a birth, like nobody yet knows what Jesus is going to do, and none of nobody knows anything for thirty some more year like thirty more years. So there is a way that it's like it's actually an answer that's not an answer for a very long time and is still an answer being worked out. I think the problem that I run into or the dissonance I run into is more that we make it feel like it's really resolved, but it's actually fa- fairly like it's just that joy of getting to a place.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, or like a joy of birth is is great. It's true. It is a joy. But it's also like there's so much yet to come. It's not an end. It's a beginning. And I just don't know. Maybe the way it blends with our consumerism and traditions, it feels more like an end than a beginning. And that's where the dissonance comes into play with my Advent practices. But yeah, that that makes me think about going into a passage about waiting an Advent. But did you have anything, Lisa? You had a...
1: Well, I was thinking about like just as you named preparing, uh, in the waiting, I was like, yeah, but those are two different actions, right? Like to wait or to prepare. Um, like they go hand in hand. (laughs) Like I, I was thinking about for like Thanksgiving, you know, like there's a lot of preparations that are happening and you're waiting to actually gather together and have a meal, but it is different. And then as you're talking about 30 years is when, so stuff kind of starts changing or like Jesus is more Jesus. <laughs> it's like I think about like what would it be if we had to wait for 30 years or if we were preparing for 30 years. It like it's one thing if you know the outcome, it's another if you just are consistently preparing and never know when to expect that that preparation is completed.
0: Mhm. Yeah.
1: So I was actually got curious about preparing.
0: Well, and I think it also is interesting too, because we're working within like a calendar and like you, we talked at the very first episode about, instead of looking at time as linear, what if we looked at time as circular? And so there's this sense that like December comes back around every year. So Advent comes back around every year. There's this cyclical nature of like waiting, celebrating, waiting, celebrating, waiting, celebrating, or um, anticipating and then somewhat of a payoff. Maybe not quite the payoff we wanted it to be. Like, let's go back into waiting some more.
2: I was thinking that uh, in this idea of waiting and preparation and what the time period is, Luke is sort of a, a great place to begin with our Advent narratives. That's one of the places that actually has a longer Advent story. I mean, Mark didn't seem to think Jesus's birth was very important because he doesn't even talk about Jesus's birth. Um but Luke has a pretty extended version of um, what's going on in the beginning. And so I wonder if we start with the beginning of Luke, but just in verses, uh, we usually only read a few verses. So I'm thinking Luke chapter one, verses five through seven uh, could be our starting point for today.
1: Luke one, five to seven. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abiha. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before the Lord, walking in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years.
2: So what I like about starting here is that um, in all this pent-up weighing energy, we're not even talking about Jesus yet. Like why start the story here? Why start the story with Zechariah and Elizabeth um, instead of just launching right into angels and Jesus and Magi and you know all the things we think of with Christmas? Here we have the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth launching the Book of Luke. I don't know. Have you in our traditions? Did we hear Zechariah and Elizabeth being talked about very much?
0: No. I mean, I, I always heard the you know, cute moment when the baby kicks, when Mary approaches and isn't that cool. It's kind of like this kind of this miracle moment, right? So it is a little bit more miraculous. It wasn't, you kind of skipped over that this first section where you just kind of talk about their life kind of normalcy of it. And it kind of just always jumped right into the exciting part about, um, you know, their interaction.
1: I feel like it's cheating because I've been studying with 40 Orchards too long. So <laughs> I'm like, know, oh, no, you know I, don't. I love this part of the story. I love focusing on this part of the story. But I was reminded um, I'm currently spending some time at uh, Stillwater Prison. And one of the guys was uh, teaching on this particular passage. And the framework he was using is how do we see God at work? and like paying attention to God being at work. And so it is an interesting thing to center around a family that what we kind of remember most about them is that this is John this is John's parents. But we don't often wonder like how did they how is their parenting actually impacting John's life and what was to come? Like what kind of parents were these two? Hmm.
2: Right. Well, let's, and let's start then by thinking about their names. And this is, as we do it in Forty Orchards, we tend to pay attention to what are people named and how does that uh, contribute to how we hear their story. And that applies in the new Testament as well. Um, especially when we're talking about these two folks with Hebrew names, because they are Hebrew people. So Zachariah, his name is from Zachar and Yah, short for the name of God. So um Jehovah remembers, zakar is to remember, and Elizabeth is El for God, um, and then uh, Sheba for um, seven or oath or faithfulness is all kind of into the number seven, so El Sheba would be her name in uh, Hebrew. I love just pausing to think about these two names, like what is it to be named the living presence remembers and God is my oath in this time period in the roles they have and to be barren and not having children and how it feels to carry those names.
1: Well, if we place it in, um, well, in Christian tradition or what, what I was taught was that God has been quiet for 400 years. There's been nada. That's not true for all traditions. Um, And I don't think that's true of God. But we don't have written documentation in the Christian Bible of God speaking or doing any, like this couple is the couple that's going to get it. But before they get it, they're named something that doesn't feel real.
2: Okay. Ooh, that was quite a way to say, before they get it, they're named something that maybe doesn't seem real. And there's a lot of there's a lot of things written during that inter- intertestamental period that Lisa's referring to, right? The the um, our Jewish brothers and sisters as they celebrate Hanukkah, that's celebrating the Maccabees, which happened more like 200 years before this point versus 400 years before this point. Um, so there are things happening. There are ways God seems to be present. There are ways God seems to be intervening, but it's never quite working all the way. Like they haven't actually left. Um, Being occupied like that was the hope that was happening with the Maccabees It was okay will we finally be free from from Greece and it turns out no, (laughs) because now comes the Romans. So you're still living in the promised land occupied by an empire. God's doing stuff but it's not quite maybe what you would hope or all the way.
0: Yeah, and part of that breakup of the Maccabean kind of revolution, in a way that kicked out the Greeks, was a lot of family infighting. They they couldn't they really couldn't just get it together to like actually lead the people forward, and and so there was kind of this vacuum based on the infighting. It created a vacuum for the Rome to just kind of say, well, if they're not going to get this together, it's going to make it pretty easy for us. And so they were able to step in really smoothly and easily, um, and put down kind of that family dynasty, the Hasmonean dynasty, and kind of put an end to that. And so now, um, you know, the priestly class, right, the Pharisees, those that are over the temple, can point to that time and say, hey, we almost got it, but we weren't following the law. We weren't loving our neighbor. We weren't even loving our own family well enough. We weren't even good Jews in a way to actually support what God had given us the ability to do which is get our freedom back. And so now we need to get on this um kind of righteous train to uh have God do another move like that again to to help us get our freedom back. And so you see a lot of um you know the Pharisees really kind of stake their claim to the law and really pushing it on the people.
2: What creates this question in the time period more in the New Testament? And we talk about this idea of waiting for a Messiah, I think the question really is what kind of Messiah is going to come? It's not just when it's it's who and why um that there's different expectations for what it's for for what kind is this is this about um freedom in the land is it about something with religion is it about so we have zealots we have um who are who are sort of doing more of a violent uprising we've got all we have different ideas of who a messiah is going to be and what a messiah is going to do and therefore where someone's placing their hope um what are what are we even do we even agree what we're waiting for do we agree who we're waiting for do we agree what we're hoping for um And how does that affect how we live now? I don't think there was much agreement. I think people were waiting for a lot of things. People were waiting. It was a hard time when people were placing their waiting and hoping in a lot of different places. But somehow in the midst of that, these two were righteous. What comes to mind when you guys hear the word righteous?
0: (laughs) So many things. (laughs) Purity culture. (laughs) (laughs) Let me just throw that out there.
2: Lisa, is that what comes to mind for you with righteous? I
1: was thinking about you calling it the righteous train before. It's <laughs> <laughs> so like, oh, Judy Culture threw me off a minute. <laughs> um, I don't know. Righteousness just feels like something that also doesn't. It actually feels like you're kind of pompous if you claim to be righteous, like more righteous than you or I don't think I've ever. I'm trying to think I have been pompous before but I don't know that I've ever declared myself righteous. It always feels like a trick question. Like, I don't know what the actual definition is. I just have a thing that I associate with it. But I know if I actually look at the word, it's probably a whole different thing than what it, but it's not a great word. It's kind of religious-y.
2: Right. Right. It's a religious-y word that to me, it always feels like an impossible standard. Like the feeling of righteousness is something that I'm falling short of all the time. And then however people are falling short of it around me or in me, there's just that feeling of like, not quite enough that comes with righteous to me.
1: Yeah. I don't, have you, have you guys ever asked if somebody, like, have you ever called somebody righteous in a positive way?
2: No. I don't, yeah, well, and right in this, but here Luke is saying this about this. Right. So Luke is writing this about them and it's a positive term. But so um, the, the word in, in Greek is dikaios, which means righteous, it also means just. Does it feel different when we were, use the word just if we say someone is a just person?
0: Yeah, I, I like that because righteous feels comparative. It feels hierarchical. Whereas just feels communal, but in a way of, I mean, not to get all, I guess, you know, Christian-y about this, but like, it, it feels like we're moving towards shalom, as opposed to like, moving towards I'm awesome. There's something about the neighbor that comes into play when you talk about being just, as opposed to, I'm a perfect human being who doesn't have flaws.
2: There is a theologian whose name I'm looking for right now because I want to um, quote him well. So he talks about um, Dikai Sune and the Sermon on the Mount in particular and righteousness and justice. And he talks about how in Plato, Dikai Sune 100% of the time is translated as justice. And in the New Testament, sune almost every time is translated as righteousness. And do we hear those words as the same? And how does using a word like just versus a word like righteous affect how we hear something and what we hear is being said about them? Lisa, you look deep in thought.
1: Um, Well, because I'm thinking about verb versus noun uh, or maybe adverb, adjective. I'm trying to think of what I would think the action for being righteous is versus the action of being just is. Maybe it's just righteous and righteousness, but I feel like just and justice gives me a little bit of a bend, but I'm missing it with righteousness. There's something missing for me. Maybe I just don't know how to see it.
2: Well, and I I think if we dissect it even in English, there's this idea that am I aligned in the right way? Am am I aligned with some like righteousness would have some sense of like inner compass, which is also hopefully where justice comes from. Like how's our inner compass. And I think that that's probably how we can see that it could be the same word, but we hear it really differently because maybe we hear it differently based on outer compass. But to me, I hear this as like, Oh, they both, both of them had an inner compass that was aligned with God. This translation also says like equitable. They had an equitability that was aligned with God, but there's this verb about to show or expose or to give proof of something that that's the verb underneath this, these ideas of righteousness and justice in the dekaisune it's dekainu. De- nope. Dekainuo. That's what it is. Dekainuo. So I wonder about like that showing or that like, if that gives us something to work with for what these folks were like, that there was, they showed through the way they were living what their inner alignment was. And that showing has something to do with justice and righteousness when what's on the outside matches what's on the inside. And then in their case, when that is aligned with God.
1: I don't know that I question their goodness. Like, I feel like when the Bible's like, they were righteous, I'm like, got it. Really good people. Like, <laughs> good people outside inside the whole thing they're good so like i don't wrestle like I, I wrestle with it who would i give that title to these days but i don't even for a second question their character
0: well and i think it's a difference in like i okay let me say it this way i 100% agree with what you're saying lisa when someone says that someone in the bible is righteous i'm like that's the kind of person that we should be down with that we should want to learn from whatever they're doing we Like they're it. But then when it's like, Jason, in your life, you need to be righteous. It was like, don't make a mistake. Don't slip up. Don't, you know, not go to church or don't use a swear word or, you know, and like, and it felt so like I just felt like I couldn't breathe my life because If I didn't do it all right, then I wouldn't be righteous anymore. And then I wouldn't get called that or I wouldn't be a part of the the club that is. And so I I like this idea of kind of deconstructing and reconstructing what righteousness is as kind of outwardly showing what their inner compass is pointed towards in alignment with what God is up to, because that only reemphasizes what I already thought about them. and that's something that i can be a part of because i'm less worried about messing up and more worried about being in alignment and that's what i'm after anyway well
2: and what maybe process. what's helpful to say about them is they're humans so this is a word not being used about i mean i think it will get used about jesus but right now this isn't somebody this is these are just these are two humans who are living in a chaotic time where they are oppressed where, they're not, where people aren't quite sure where their hope should be. And somehow they are still living in that right alignment and their outward actions show that right alignment with God, which shows us something like that is possible. Even a chaotic time, even in grief and loss. If you, I mean, if they're old and they don't have children, that's pointing out for me, they have grief and loss. They have oppression. They have chaos. They have all these things, but yet they can, they're still living this way. Like these are people we can model after, because they are humans doing a really hard thing that apparently humans are capable of doing
0: Well, and on top of that, and that now correct me if I'm wrong, but at that point in time, the way they attributed fault or sin was that if there was something wrong in your life that would have been societally seen as normal, um and I'm really hesitant to even use that word, but so for instance, having children was what was expected of someone. The ability to have children. And if you didn't, oftentimes there was an attribution of sin. Like what what did you do in your life to be to have this ailment or to have this thing happen to you that you can't do what you should be able to do? And so it's almost like the writer's going out of his way to say, hey, although there's this thing being barren, it's not because they were headed down a wrong path and this is their punishment. They're righteous. And this is what's happened in their life. Um, so like, don't get the two mixed up. Right. I mean, I think there's a, there's a passage later on where someone is saying to Jesus, well, who sinned, you know, the person or the parents as to why this person is I think crippled or something. And Jesus is like, why, what do you th- No, Neither. Like mm-hmm. it's not about that. It's about the healing that can come or something like that or whatever. And so um, well, it's not about the sin.
1: <laughs> and to be fair, uh, this is when we're talking about barrenness. We are talking about women, right? Particularly, like there. I don't know how much shame Zechariah is feeling about that, other than a longing for a child. But Elizabeth is bearing, right, that kind of judgment as all women who mm-hmm. uh, weren't producing.
2: Well, and which should <laughs> lead us to two. I mean, it really actually brings us a question. Just already here in verse seven in Luke one of how do we read the stories that have come beforehand? Because on the one hand in the biblical tradition, we see the Psalms that talk about children being a blessing. And like, when you have many children, it's like a quiver, whatever you, there's, there's places where it talks about that being a blessing from God. That's where that theology comes from as a sign of blessing. But also when we look at the story that has come before, where do we hear the story of barren women?
0: Abraham and Sarah, uh, Isaac and Rebecca, you know, the story of Rachel. So, I mean, there's just a number of women in the genealogy. Um, if you want to get specific and in the tradition that have been barren and there's more, but those are just the three that come to mind right away.
2: So yes, right in this genealogy of Jesus in which is in the book of Matthew, but when we see the story that's come before, there is this trajectory of women who are barren actually being the very place that God comes into the story. And so when we have the circumstance of this right here in chapter one, we're sort of already maybe being pushed to wrestle a little bit about, okay, what do we think? What do we think her story is? And what is her story going to be? Lisa, you look deep in thought about that.
1: Um, I just think there's a wrestle. Like, because also these women all have children. And I think anytime we're talking about barrenness and fertility and womanhood and um, now we also know that there's like fatherhood that is impacted by this. And so I it's just hard sometimes to like stay in the biblical story or the biblical narrative of it while knowing that the human narrative has some tones that can be really painful and hurtful. And so I just want to be careful. Like, I'm just trying to, like, like, I want to stay in the biblical narrative, but the human narrative is like rising up um, mm-hmm. in certain ways, too.
2: Well, and what I love about Luke actually is another story that we're not told very often is um, Anna. Um, and when we're in chapter 2, verse 36, and she's a prophet and she is of great age and she's single. And she's also a part of the biblical narrative of the Messiah coming. And so there there we have it with the story of a woman without a child where it's not about anybody's worth being less because she doesn't have a child. Actually, she's really elevated in the story as a single woman who who is a part of this moment in time of blessing Jesus when he comes to the temple when he's eight days old. And so I think even there to sort of be careful, I feel like what you're getting at is like we have it is really, we have to be really gentle with these stories when, because infertility and loss and patriarchy, gender role, like there's a bunch of layers to how we hear these stories that can be really painful if we're not careful with how we expound on them for the modern day. But in this case, a part of what happens is that we're being told this from the, so we're, we're supposed to know this about them. We're supposed to know that they are righteous or just, whichever word we want to use and that they have no children.
1: It's almost um, as if their lives, if they died today, they're good. Mm-hmm. Like the reminder that they're good here. They're good before anything else even happens, and sometimes we forget. But in the midst, you have to pause and say, you're good, this is mm-hmm. good, it's been good this far, even if it's been hard and not what you hoped for. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean they're really if you end at verse 7, you already have a good story. Here's these two people, both husband and wife being named about how good they're living. About how righteous and good they are. But the story doesn't end there. They keep it keeps going. So that this is this day where Zechariah is a priest and uh, he was selected by lot to serve as a priest. So what happened in this um, time period is there's just a lot of priests and there's only one temple <laughs> by the time you get further down the line. And so you have all sorts of different priestly duties that the um, the priest would do, but you get chosen by lot on um, like once in your life to potentially be the guy to like go in and go into the holy of holies and do the big like so Zechariah this is his day he was chosen by a lot to go into the temple to go all the way into the holy of holies to be the one to like do the rites and the order that day so this is like a big it's a big day for Zechariah.
1: Jason do you have a sports analogy for what this moment might be like <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> um no maybe draft day I don't know maybe we're maybe we're preparing for the draft you know the NFL has turned uh the whole draft into like this weekend long thing and they do like one day is all the first round and the next day is the like rounds two and three anyway so maybe this is like anticipation of round one of the draft I don't know
1: it's just such a big day for him like if you are a priest this has to be this is your Super Bowl. This is your starting Super Bowl moment. Um, where you're like assured the victory and the MVP status. Right. Like you, you get go. to go to the you're inner spot it. and you like you already know that this is what you Yeah. I mean, you wake up and you have to have a different like wait. There's a weight to like going in there, but there is a man, you gotta feel real lucky.
0: So in the NBA they invite a certain number of guys into the draft room it's called and they get to go to the draft cuz they know they're going to get drafted really high in the you know in the selection process and not everybody gets to be brought to that space right but you go to that space knowing full well you know in the next like handful of picks I'm going to go up there and get my hat and shake the commissioner's hand and get my picture taken do an interview and then I'm you know I'm a millionaire overnight um, so it's almost like you know you're getting in that room and you're anticipating like this is this is for real this there's no one's gonna take this away from me
2: yeah he's going- he's this is my it's my time it's my time to offer the incense and and I'm a righteous person, so like if I'm Zechariah like you gotta think he's been looking forward to this time. <laughs> We're having a phone ringing problems today.
0: did you guys hear that? yes. <laughs> My gosh, say that say that again, so we can just cut out that whole thing.
2: I know. Um, oh, okay, he, also,
1: Steph, I just when you sit, when you go to like the incense, like it just is a wet, wah wah <laughs> after like, the build up to what it is. He gets offered the incense. <laughs> it just feels, I mean, it's important, but it just feels a little bit like a letdown. <laughs> He'd be really excited about the incense, though. <laughs>
2: Oh my gosh. This one's off the rails. Okay. All right. So Zachariah is, um, this is a big day for him. He is a priest. He is a righteous person as we had that whole discussion. So we've got to assume he's looking forward to this day um, where he gets to be the one to go into the temple to offer incense, which might sound like blem to us, (laughs) but incense, it's a big privilege to go and offer the incense at the temple. And so he's doing it. It is his day to go do it. And so he, in verse 10, it's time for the incense offering. The whole assembly of the people is praying outside and he goes in. So this is that moment. So he is, the people are outside. He's in the temple. And in verse
0: 11. Can I just interrupt for a second? I know we just said like offering the incense is wont wah But like if somebody called me, and they would never do this because I'm not Catholic, but if they called me and said, on like, some holy day, right? Will you come to like St. Peter's or St. Paul's Cathedral in St. Paul? And will you carry this thing down to the front and light this or offer this or shake, you know, whatever, whatever I needed to do, I would be so profoundly nervous. Like I would, that would be nerve wracking to me to be a part of something that's been going on for so long. And is so special to people, even not being a part of that tradition, I would be freaking out. So I can only imagine that if you're a if you're ingratiated in this tradition for hundreds of years and now you're the one performing this sacred rite, like how could you not be super enthralled by that, even if it is something like lighting the incense, which maybe to us doesn't sound that like magical, but like that's kind of the whole deal. And so anyway.
1: But also as a community of people who's watching it happen, it's like wanting, like you want them to come out with a message. You want them to come out and tell you like how awesome this is. Like we, I will never have that experience. So like you're relying on whatever priest, Mm -hmm. (laughs) do the lot, got to do it. Like you, the appreh like just wanting them to come out and tell you all about it. Like mm-hmm. there's a big, sh- like we're all, we all traveled here. We're all together.
2: Well, right. And, and it says in um uh, my notes here that uh, during the Maccabean reign, the, uh, the Maccabean king received divine revelation during the incense offering. So it makes you wonder like, are these people gathered waiting to see this time is someone going to receive divine revelation? Is it going to happen again? Is God showing up? Because again, we have this waiting, hoping, like what's going to happen time period. So he's inside. Everybody's waiting outside. Is this going to be a time of divine revelation? He's in there. And it turns out an angel shows up. It (laughs) happens, Jim, which what makes me, this is what makes me think about it. When you said this, I'm going to like jump way ahead in verse 18, because Zechariah does get, this is like a thing we remember. So the angel shows up, tells him he's going to have a kid. Um, and talks about who that kid will be. And in verse 18, Zechariah says to the angel, how will I know this is so? For I'm an old man and my wife is getting on in years. What are some of the reasons that he might ask that of the angel?
1: Well, for the exact thing he just said, like, I am old. My wife is old. Like, we've we've had a good long life. Well, if somebody told me right now I was going to be pregnant. I'd be like, okay, wait, let's talk about this for a minute. <laughs> but I would like to, <laughs> I want to, are we sure? Well, <laughs> yeah. when, you,
2: when you were highlighting the crowd and the, the revelation, that conversation, I was just thinking about that verse and thinking, I wonder if he's cognizant, even at this moment, that he's got to go back outside.
1: and tell everybody?
2: And tell everybody.
1: Oh yeah.
2: Right? Because everybody's waiting yeah. for the divine revelation. And it, and he was, I I'm curious if he did think, like, did he think he'd get a divine revelation at all? A- B, if he did, did he think it would be about like Jerusalem or Rome or like something? And then, but his divine revelation is about him and his wife having a child, this real vulnerable spot in their life.
1: Yeah. And are, do you tell everybody? Do you not tell everybody? But it's like you're supposed to, that's your job. Like you got a revelation.
2: Right. Like, I wonder if this is about the vulnerability of like, if I go out and say to the people waiting out there that an angel told me I'm going to have a kid, like, what's the proof? Because that is a real vulnerable thing to say to them. Like for him to go out and say, hey, the divine revelation was about me. I'm going to have a child and my child is going to be coming in the spirit of Elijah to usher in the Messiah. Like, what a thing to say.
1: What a thing to say. (laughs) Also, like, if you're wrong, <laughs> what? Right? Ha- I mean, <laughs> if you come out and say we're gonna have a kid, oh, also, hmm. yeah, I'd want proof. I, I, Angel and I would be having some words. I like that feels like insane amount of pressure. I'd rather be wrong about like a lot of other things. That feels vulnerably wrong.
2: okay what's right this feels vulnerably wrong (laughs) there's a difference between just a mistake or like being wrong in this public vulnerable way and so please angel would you would you tell me how i know this is so how can we open ourselves to being vulnerably wrong as we wait for something we hope for
0: I don't know. I I mean, there's a part of me that's like, okay, the next line after this is he's going to get basically, you know, the angel's not going to be exactly kind, right? The angel's like, I stand in the presence of like the Lord almighty and you didn't believe me. So you're going to be silent. Like, it's kind of like, all right, buddy, if you can't handle this, then you don't get to, you know, we're, we're going to quiet you down. And so I'm like, okay, why didn't Zachariah, Zacharias, why didn't he get on board with this right away? And I just, I'm, I'm with you guys. I can't get there. Like, I, I mean, if, if you were to tell me anything miraculous like that, I'd be like, what? Like, come on. You know, the only thing I can imagine is that maybe as a priest and as someone who was righteous and was full of the inner alignment with what God is up to, um, you, you set aside your own being able to be seen as a fool and you, 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 you have to trust and believe. I mean, you got to be like Abraham who doesn't even know where he's going. He just knows he's got to go and he leaves everything behind and he just takes off. And, you know, you get told that you're going to have a kid and you just do it. And, you you know, you have to just trust that it's going to happen. And so maybe there's a level of like, hey you know the story better than anybody in this community you're a priest like and i'm telling you this is going to happen like this is your tradition like get on board with it i don't know like that's the only that's the only like that's the only thing i can think of to like make me think that what happens to him makes sense but But i don't even like the words coming out of my mouth
1: what if it's not a punishment though well it doesn't say like (laughs) you're being smote Like that's not happening, but like the angel saying, like, listen, I am, I'm, I am here. Like I, this is true. And because you're not able to like, believe it, we're not going to have you speak it. And it just means you're going to be quiet until it actually comes to fruition. So then when you speak it, it has meaning. Like you have the opportunity to do it in this really vulnerable space. And if you're not, if you can't do it, that's okay. Okay. But we also are going to make sure you don't like trip over your like you don't try to explain it or do there's a there's a purpose for it. It probably doesn't feel real great, but maybe it's also just not a punishment. But because I think there are times when I'm totally willing to like go on the edge and say something true about myself before it's happened because I believe it will happen. And there are other times where I keep that tucked in real tight and I don't say nothing to anybody because it is it's just too vulnerable
2: well and if we think about what Zechariah asked in the first place of how will this be so now what has he just been given proof he a miracle just happened to him every time he tries to speak for the next nine months he won't be able to speak Every time he tries to speak for the next nine months, he will be taken back to this moment where his speech was taken away, which will help him remember this moment, which will help him hold on to this moment every time for the next nine months, 40 weeks, he doubts whether this is actually coming to play. Like, what if this what if this is the sign that he asked for? It's just maybe not the form that he thought it was going to take.
1: It also is a sign for the people. Like, Mm -hmm. obviously, her having a child will be a sign but now there's something extra special happening. Now you're like, what is going on versus I, you know, medical fluke. If I saw a 60 year old woman walking by pregnant, I probably wouldn't be like, do do you know what I'm saying? Like it adds to the, it adds to the thing that's happening that people are witnessing that makes you pay attention differently.
2: Right. Verse 22. When, when he did come out, he could not speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision and he kept motioning to them. So this somehow, it was okay. It was enough. Like what he's given here is enough to let the people know that he has had a vision and for them to see that something's happening. I think about what it was like for him to communicate this to Elizabeth. What do you guys, this is like Midrash zone. He doesn't have a voice. How does he tell Elizabeth what's happening? And how does she believe him? I don't know,
3: this is a safe conversation.
0: (laughs) We're not recording this, so it's totally fine to say whatever comes to mind. I
2: might have just laughed too loud for podcast
1: audio there. Sorry. (laughs) There's probably a lot of ways to communicate a lot of things. Because I know they're righteous, I feel like that means that Elizabeth is a person who might trust her husband.
2: She really like when we think about giving credit to someone in this story, like Elizabeth didn't get the first hand angel experience and she enters into this and becomes the mother of John. And is, is along for the whole ride of what this is, and she seems to believe in verse 25, she said, this is what the Lord has done for me when he looked favorably on me and took away the grace I've endured among the disgrace I've endured among my people. So it's only after hearing that story that we hear the story of an angel coming to visit Mary. Why tell this story first?
0: It puts us in a position to be ready for another kind of miraculous story, something that like at some level, like God's up to something right now, like the waters are stirring and it's like, it's happening. I also think that like this whole story really grounds us in the tradition and sets us up to say like, this is in line with what has been anticipated, you know, like it's got so many kind of hallmarks of, I mean, even like the fact that they're in the lines of Abijah and, and Aaron. And like, there's this like connection to like the priestly class of Israel. There's this connection to, these birth narratives of Abraham and Sarah and, you know, Isaac and Rebecca. I mean, there's just so many pieces of this that are kind of culminating with, okay, now I'm reminding you of your past. Now get ready for your future. Right. Because
2: God remembers and God is my oath. These are the two names. God has remembered. We're connecting these to the stories of the past and God is faithful. We're going to connect this into the stories of the future. Um, be ready. Do you see it?
1: It also feels like God just doesn't do that stuff alone. You're not. Sometimes we can focus so much on Mary and Joseph and Jesus that we miss that God was doing things and other people were a part of the story and necessary for part of the story. And it's not just like the angels came to these two people who weren't necessarily like center of story. I mean, they do have John, which is a big deal, but also I, yeah, it's an interesting to think about like the communal element of having more than one thing happening and for Mary to have a place where she can go. Yeah. Nobody wants to do that kind of crazy stuff alone. You don't like when you are not just a one, as much as we want, like, well, pick me. God doesn't play that game.
2: Right. It gives, I mean, this is, it gives somebody, um, it gives Mary a person to go visit after she has her angel visit. Like that she's, and there was something in her, you know, it sounds like she doesn't know this happened exactly when she goes to visit Elizabeth. Maybe it's, I mean, it's maybe unclear how much she knew, but she knows that her cousin Elizabeth is faithful, is righteous. Like that character that we talked about was known. And so that's who Mary goes to visit after she gets this visit from the angel. And then she, and she hears more about this story of John. Then she sings the Magnificat, like all of that is still coming, but it's Mary isn't going to have to do this alone. There is a community being formed for her ahead of time in Zachariah and Elizabeth. And God is acting in these multiple ways at this point in history as people are waiting and maybe not what it, exactly what people thought he was going to do, but God is there. Not only do we not know, a lot about those first 30 years of Jesus' life. We don't know a lot about these, this gestational period. What was Mary's life like between the angel visit and the birth? What was it like for her? What was it like for Elizabeth? Um, What are the times in between these visits and these seasons? And, um, you know, that maybe brings us back to the Advent conversation about just how much ordinary time there is in the midst of waiting and how much waiting there is even after something has come so you give birth like what is it like for for elizabeth and mary watching these babies be toddlers like you know that something's coming but you still they're not adults yet so you're still just faithfully raising them and waiting to see when something will happen or what will happen and you don't quite know but you know you're a part of it like the waiting continues even after something comes and how do you how do you stay faithful in that how do you Live well, in that
1: makes me wonder a little bit of maybe it wasn't so much because a lot of times we talk about John, you know, being so weird, (laughs) but maybe John just had a really like maybe there's a lot of pressure on him or a lot of like people not understanding. I think we talk about like their kids grow up with extra pressure if they're told they're going to be something or the expectation that they're going to be something, and. So how like how are they parented? How and has a parent, how do you know how to parent a child that has a specific potential call on their life? Like how do you parent that well? Do you become overbearing or do you just like let it rip? <laughs> <laughs> They'll be fine. This is the you know like how much we see ourselves as having to like.
0: Well, and how long was he parented? Because his yeah. parents were already already older, and so we don't even know how young he was when they may have passed away and what that does to a child and you know like so when we talk about him having these different habits like maybe those were part of his grief process and his survival process you know to to just disconnect from community that may have been not grieving well with him or was maybe grieving in a way that he couldn't and he needed to find alternative space to. To deal with his emotion. I mean, we don't, we have no idea.
2: Well, a lot of his behavior matches the the behavior of the Essene community, which lived in the Judean hillside. And um, maybe it's that he went and lived with them after his parents died. Mm. Um, and that could be a trajectory that would make a lot of sense. And then he came forth from them when he started his ministry. Yeah. I wonder, as we go into Advent and Christmas, like what it is to allow sense of fulfillment and this sense of continued waiting at the same time and how that might affect how we do that work if we sort of say yeah there's pieces of things that start to become more revealed or start to find hope but then there's there's unknown things too or there's frustrated things how do we just take each next step and see what god will do
0: This podcast is a partnership between 40 Orchards and Processing Faith. 40 Orchards invites people to wrestle through biblical texts using the ancient Jewish concepts of Midrash. In a 40 Orchards study, every question is safe, everyone is welcome, and every voice is valued. We believe there's room for all of us. No person and no question is off limits because we know that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40orchards.org. That's four-zero-orchards.org. Processing Faith is a space created by Jason Steffenhagen for people to do exactly that, process their faith. It's not one thing, but more like a good recipe. It's like one part pastoral care, one part theological exploration, and one part wrestling with all the questions. You can learn more about processing faith and sign up for a free 45 minute session by going to processingfaith.com. Thanks again for joining us on Searching to Safe.